Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of it to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're using a, a Bible from the hymnal rack, it's page 1018. 1018. Greatly appreciate Elliot Everett uh, preaching last Sunday uh, here. I've heard such positive comments. And Barbara and I were at uh, House and Lake Presbyterian Church uh, where I preached at their missions conference last Sunday morning. It's great to see that work firsthand of all that God's done over the past nine years since that church was planted. Second Peter chapter 2 verses 1 and following. This, is a, this will be a sermon as part of a series on perseverance that I started a few weeks ago. Hear God's word. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Steve Brown tells the story of how one time his daughter Robin, when she was in high school, found herself in a very, very difficult advanced high school English literature course that she desperately wanted to get out of. So she sat there on her first day and thought, if I do not transfer out of this class, I'm going to fail. She came home with tears in her eyes and begged her father to help her get out of the class so that she could take a normal English class. And Steve, as her father said, of course. So the next day, they took her down to the school. They went to the head of the English department. Uh, who was a very nice woman and a great teacher, and Steve recounts the event in his words here. She, the head of the English department, looked up and saw me standing there by my daughter and could tell that Robin was about to cry. There were some other students standing around, and because the teacher did not want Robin to be embarrassed, she dismissed the students, saying, I want to talk to these people alone. As soon as the students left and the door closed, Robin began to cry. And I said, I am here to get my daughter out of that English course. It is too difficult for her. The problem with my daughter is that she's too conscientious. So can you please put her into a normal English class? The teacher said, Mr. Brown, I understand. Then she looked at Robin and said, can I talk to Robin for a minute? And I said, sure. 
She said, Robin, I know how you feel. What if I promised you an A no matter what you did in the class? If I gave you an A before you even started, would you be willing to take the class? My daughter's no, no dummy. She started sniffling and said, well, I think I could do that. The teacher said, okay, I'm going to give you an A in the class. You already have an A, so now go to the class. Later, the teacher explained to Steve what she had done. She explained how she took away the threat of a bad grade so that Robin could learn English literature. And as a father, he said she ended up making straight A's on her own in that class. Peter writes here in 2 Peter to encourage believers who are discouraged. And he's saying because of Christ's finished work, we have an A. And because we have an A and the threat of future judgment and condemnation has been removed because we have an A and we are in Christ forever and we can do nothing to get a higher grade. Yet, even though we're discouraged because we have an A, we are to do certain things. We are still to follow him and we are to do certain things that we just are described in verses 5 through 11. If you face discouragement in your walk with Christ, chronically or just every now and then, then this letter is for you. And he starts off, and I'll go quickly through the first few verses, very quickly, and then we'll focus on verses 5 to 9. In verse 1, he says he wants us to remember who we are. Remember your identity. He says, to those who have obtained a faith. You did not work for it. You did not make it happen. It is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. And it's by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. We're only made right before God with the righteousness of Christ. There's something innate with all of us that thinks we can somehow earn favor with God if we just live a certain way, if we just do certain things, and we can't. Do you really want to stand before God based on your righteousness? That your record is that good? If you think it is, ask the person next to you. Because we've not even been righteous since we woke up this morning. And our thoughts or our words or our deeds... And God demands perfection. And so the only way we are right with him is through the works of Jesus, that we get his A that then is given to us on our F. Why does Peter start here? Why does he begin by reminding them of what it means to be right with God? Because he's getting ready to give some imperatives. And in the Christian life, we always have to begin with the indicatives the statements, the declarations of what is true. Then, flowing from that, we have the imperatives of what we are to do. If you reverse that, which normally the church in North America does, that if you do these certain things, if you do it and do it and do enough of it, then God will love you, then God will accept you, you deny the gospel. So we always begin with the indicatives of being in Christ, of knowing Christ, of trusting him, and then flowing from that come the imperatives. So he wants us to know who you are, wants you to know who you are before giving instructions on what to do. Okay, I told you I was going quickly. Now verses 3 and 4, he mentions our resources. He says that God gives his divine power to all believers in Christ. And he has supplied you with everything you need to live the life God has called, called you to live. 
You realize that? He hasn't just given you 10% of the resources needed, not even half of the resources. He has granted you everything you need to live the life he has called you to live, and he has given it in the form of his great promises. Promises that are not appropriated are, serve no purpose. They, they are not any good. Uh, imagine if you have a, a very good friend that you've known a long time, that you trust, and this person is a person of, of his word. And he says to you, if you are ever in my hometown, if you're ever in Memphis, Tennessee, if you're passing through, I want you to call me. I've got something I want to do for you. So call me now if you're ever there. Well, there's the promise. But if you never go to Memphis and you don't appropriate the, the promise, the promise really does no good to you or for you. Your whole Christian life is based on appropriating God's promises. The Bible's packed with promises of God. That he promises to be with us, that he promises to use us, what he promises to do in us. And God's divine power has given us all things that lead to godliness. And so, then he says, for this very reason, because of all that, then we are to do certain things. But I want to stress again, before we look at the, in the imperatives, the necessity of understanding justification and sanctification. Justification is an act whereby we are declared righteous in God's sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's what it says in our catechism. That's a good summary of what the Bible teaches. You have nothing to do with making that happen. You receive it. You have faith that in itself is a gift of God. You had as much to do with being born again as you had to being born. How much did you have to do with your birth when you look back at it? Or when you think back to it, I should say. But you have a whole lot to do with your sanctification. There's such a fear realizing that salvation is by grace that when you start talking about things we should do, that, oh, you're going to violate grace, you don't understand what it means to be right with God. No, all through the scriptures. We are made right with God. We receive it as a gift. It is full. It is final. It is free. We can't add to it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It was unconditional. And yet, when it comes to sanctification and growing in Christ, we have a lot to do with it. We do that with his strength. But some people, in wanting to say, we don't want to get confused here, or we're going to be sounding like we think we can earn God's favor. No, it's because we've experienced God's favor that we now are able to do this. But if you confuse those and think, well, I've got to do these things to make sure God loves me, or I've got to do this to make sure I really belong to him. You know what that's like? That would be like being in a marriage where you had no security that your spouse loved you. And so every day, you had to reprove yourself to gain that person's love. So each day you would wake up, oh, what have I got to do today? I've got to speak a certain way. I've got to do these things. I've got... And every day, and at the end of the day, you still wouldn't be sure. How long would there be joy and devotion in that marriage? There would just be anger and resentment. And that's why I think there's so much anger at times in the church. Because it's like, I do it, I do, 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 but I can't do enough. Well, if that's your thinking, you don't understand justification. We are made right with God. We do these things because we are right with God. That's Peter's point. That is Peter's point. 
So verse 5 says we have to supplement our faith. He says add to your faith. Well, wait a minute. How can I add to that? Well, the word means like to provide an orchestra. To supplement or to add to means to fulfill in that you bring it out. A few moments ago we sang that well-known tune with, with song, was it hymn number 95, and it was just with the organ. And as nice as it was, just imagine if we had had the orchestra, the strings over here, and, and, and maybe some brass over here. Suddenly, same song, same, same music, but it but wow, man, now that's full. That's the idea. That's the word. Add to, supplement, fill out the orchestra of your faith. And make every effort, he says, to grow in Christ. Now look at He's going to give a list of things that we should focus on. Beginning in verse 5. I, I, the print's gotten so small. Somebody's moving the Bibles each week. Somebody puts a smaller printed Bible up here. And so I have the passage written down, but I can't find it quick enough given my eyesight. I'd like to see whoever's... Each week they put different font in here and make it smaller. First, we're to add virtue. You see that in verse 5? It means goodness, moral energy, that we run the race with energy and strength and passion and enthusiasm. So add virtue or diligence. Add, add knowledge, he says. Uh, last Sunday I mentioned uh, being at Houston Lakes Missions Conference. I preached on the Great Commission and Christ saying, teaching them all I commanded you. We need to know. We need to increase in our knowledge. Uh, this is more than just simple head knowledge of doctrine, it means insight and enlightenment to understand the Christian life, to understand and have discernment about temptation and entanglements. And you know yourself, you grow in that knowledge of how God has wired you. You grow in your knowledge of how God works. You grow in your knowledge of, of how spiritual growth takes place. You learn to interpret your experience with Scripture rather than the other way around. You learn about trials and temptations and you understand the practical aspects and the theological aspects of life and sin and walking with Christ. So we are to grow in knowledge. Add to your knowledge is self-control. That means self-control over every area of your life. Can you imagine what a life would be like if you had complete submissiveness to God and had complete self-control? Imagine the problems that would be solved in our lives. If you uh, had complete control over your thought life, if you had complete control over your emotions, if you had complete control over your body and how you take care of your body, your eating and drinking and sleeping. Greg Laurie, I heard him say there are four stages in life for men. Stage one, you believe in Santa Claus. Stage two, you do not believe in Santa Claus. Stage three, you are Santa Claus. In stage four, you look like Santa Claus. <laughs> Greg said he's up to 100 crunches a day. Nestle's crunches. <laughs> In theology, one of the uh, categories that the way we look at human existence, a human being, is from a trichotomous point of view or a dichotomous point of view. It's kind of a fancy word. A trichotomous says that a person exists as body, soul, and spirit, those three. But a dichotomous view, which I think the Bible teaches, is a body-soul, body-soul. We know at death that is separation of the soul from the body. 
But in life, the body and soul are so, so intertwined, it's very difficult to separate those two. The point is, how you feel, what you're experiencing in your body, has great impact on your soul. And so if you're sick, or you are run down, uh, or you are injured, it's foolish to think, well, I'll just, by faith, rise above this. And we shouldn't be prisoners in that sense, but we should recognize that when I'm having a spiritual issue, I need to look at the physical too to say, well, when people, when I talk to people sometimes and they're really run down and they're really depressed spiritually, and this is a conscientious Christian, one of the first things I ask is, when is the last time you got a full night's sleep? You say, what's that got to do with their walk with Christ? That's a lot to do with it. Because it's a body, soul. R.C. Sproul tells about being in a church, and there was a woman, a very refined older woman, and she had cancer, and she had been undergoing treatments for such, and it had been very, very hard. And he was talking to her, and he said, How, how are you? And I can't, re, I can't mimic her accent, but she said in her own astute way back to him, said, R.C., it's very difficult to be a Christian with your head in the commode. You get the point. I mean, she just felt terrible, and she was saying it's affecting my walk with Christ when I feel so sick all the time. So what happens to your body affects you spiritually and so forth. So a mark of spiritual maturity is self-control. Here are some of the big areas. Some call these the seductives. Uh, the tongue, control over the tongue. Proverbs is filled with verses like, The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut out. Uh, control over areas like money and your affection for money. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. Some serve money by greed. Others serve it through debt. Others serve it by being so insecure about it they can't trust God by faith related to it. Uh, another seductive besides the tongue and money is sexual temptation. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. So as a growing Christian, I should know that, that sexual temptation is waging war against my soul. You don't toy in warfare. You don't mess around with it. So you gain self-control as you grow in Christ and learn, I need to avoid that place or I need to avoid that person because I know that temptation is going to be in that arena. So self-control, friend, is your responsibility if you are in Christ. Because now all of this was, is with the power of the Holy Spirit that was the, God's divine power. He adds steadfastness or endurance to keep on pressing on, though everything discourages you. Not being passive, but willingness to put up with the tough times because of the promises of future grace. He says, add to that godliness. It's being aware of God in every aspect of your life. To guard your heart and your soul and to tend to it and to nurture it. And then the last two, he mentions brotherly affection, your compassion for fellow believers and love in general, which is toward all people, even those outside the faith. I love the way John Piper paraphrases or restates this paragraph. He says this. This is his paraphrase of it. As you have obtained faith in Christ and stand in it, now apply yourself to advance in moral excellence. And as you stand in that, do not be satisfied, but press on to increase your knowledge of God's will. 
And as you stand in that, do not be satisfied, but be diligent to enlarge your capacities of self-control and the mastery of your passions. And as you stand in that, don't be satisfied, but cultivate every form of patience and serenity. And in that, let devoutness and piety and sweet love to God flourish. And in that, strive to kindle your affection for other believers. And in and through it all, grow in love to all men. We speak sometimes of athletes or musicians or other people, and we'll say, you know, that person never reached his or her full potential. And what we mean that we know their talent, their talent exceeded how far it was developed. In the Christian life and in your walk with Christ, God has given you everything to reach your full potential in this life and following him. It's not talking about sinless perfection, but everything you need for life and godliness. Now, how does this fit with grace and salvation by faith and not works? I keep coming back to that because we have to make sure we're clear on effort and grace. I heard a story, it's a true story, and I think it, it gives some clarification to some of this. There was a, an older couple, Robert and Glenda Lennon, and they were on their yacht fishing. They were four miles off of the coast of Florida, and it was just the two of them. They were alone. And Glenda decided, because it was hot, she decided to take a swim. And once she was in the water, she wasn't paying attention, and when she looked, a current had carried her pretty far away from the boat. And she began to yell for her husband, Robert, to come and get her. So he heard her cries, but reacting too quickly, he dove in and to swim toward her. But then he realized they were both being carried away from the boat by the strong current. Now, he was a very strong champion swimmer, but she was not. So he came up with a plan. He said that he would swim against the tide toward the boat, even though he wasn't making progress, he was losing ground, but he would keep the boat in view. And so he would swim against the tide until the tide turned, and then he'd be able to reach the boat, and he would come and pick her up. She, they determined, would just float. To save her strength, she would just float with the tide, and then he would come and get her. Well, the tide did not turn for six hours. And by the time it did, the boat was just about to disappear on the horizon. It was dusk, and he was exhausted, but he made it. Once the tide turned, he made it to the boat. By now, the sun had set, and he quickly searched for Glenda but could not find her. And so the next day, a real official search was, was organized, and they found her very much alive 20 miles away. Now, here are two points. If you try and just float along in the Christian life, you will not stay in the same place. You may think you're not moving away from God, but you are. Your heart will harden, you will grow dull in your affections for Him, you will drift and you will drift away from Him with the tides of temptation. The other lesson like Robert, Glenda's husband. You must swim and exert effort with all your might. We don't judge whether a person is a Christian on how hard they're swimming. 
But the evidence that God's power has been given to you by faith is that you now are making efforts to advance in these qualities in Christ. And he gives great encouragement. Look at verse 8. There's a warning and there's a promise. There's a warning of being ineffective. It's possible to make a profession of faith in Christ, to start in the Christian life, even to experience months or years of growth, and yet still be ineffective and unproductive. Why? Because you are forgetting, forgetting what God has done, forgetting you're standing with Him, and you are not adding to your faith. There's a promise, though. If you do these things, you will be effective for God. You will be productive. It doesn't say you'll be famous. It doesn't say that everyone will put you on a pedestal. But your own soul will be comforted and you'll be a comfort and a ministry to others. God will be glorified in and through you. And so you don't need some, the latest book. You don't need some secret formula for Christian effectiveness. You don't need the, the latest and greatest fad to make that happen. God has given you everything in Christ, all the resources to be effective and fruitful for him. Now, I want to mention something, and I said this to the first service, but I, because I was thinking a lot about this passage, and I don't want to be harsh, but with that caveat, I'm 57. I have been walking with Christ about 40 years. As a young Christian in high school, faced with all mounting temptation on every side, I really thought, I'll be glad after a year or two of Christian growth when all these temptations will be over. After 40 years, it hadn't happened. It only gets harder. Now, I'm not talking just about life in general. I'm talking about kindling affection for God. So it gets harder. It would seem if spiritual growth, Christian growth, genuine Christian growth, where somebody really knows Christ, it would seem if it was natural and automatic then the longer a person is a Christian, the more mature they would become. So in a church, let's say here's a person who's been in churches, you know, reading the Bible, hearing the Bible preached, all that, for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, more, then those would be the people that most reflect that list. Virtue, godliness, diligence, self-control, so forth. It would just seem they'll be the ones who are the models in the church, right? Does that at least make sense? If, if the premise is, if it's automatic. Here's my observation. Strictly my own, unscientific, unsurveyed. My experience is, surprisingly, that often, sometimes, the people that have been around church the longest... And often with that, they're older in life. They're my age and older. Rather than being the most godly, they're the most cynical, sarcastic, critical people in the church. And you tend to see these the least. Now, if there's any truth to that, and once again, I'm telling this is my opinion, and I'll be glad to welcome your complaints or, or disagreements. If that's true, and I think it is, I think the answer is right here because those people are not making every effort with this area that Peter's talking about. Second Peter was written in the last year of Peter's life. 
he would die under Nero. This was during Neronian persecution in Rome. He would be crucified, as you know, himself. These are the last words, not the very last, but he, he is in the twilight of life and ministry. There's a sobriety about these words. I remember reading these words as a brand new Christian. A friend showed them to me. He said, look at this paragraph from, the, from here in Peter. And he thought, look what these things were supposed to add to the faith. And for some reason, I thought, those, these words are more for new Christians. You know what I think now? I think this is a seasoned, older, mature believer who's talking to the same. And he's saying, brothers and sisters, especially those of you that have been around for a while, make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Add to your virtue godliness, discipline, self-control, diligence, brotherly affection, love. We're the ones who need to be doing that. You know, especially the, those that have been professing Christians for, for years and years. Well, two last things. He says in verse 10, if you practice these things, you will never fall. Peter knew about falling. He knew about denying Jesus three times on the night he was arrested. He also knew what it was like to be restored. Verse 11 it promises a warm welcome. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I really prefer the New American Standard Version at that point, which says you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a proper motivation, a proper motivation to grow in grace so that when we go to heaven, we will be warmly welcomed. Every true believer will go to heaven and receive an eternal inheritance. But in some way, and it's not described here, the Lord will give a special welcome, a special welcome to those who've sought to express their gratitude for His grace through a life dedicated to cultivating godliness. We know about welcomes. We watch soldiers come home. I've been in airports like you have when soldiers come into the gate and people start clapping. They're glad to see them. We read about here in Middle Georgia and Warner Robins and others, soldiers that come home and the welcome sometimes at schools and so forth. I love the story. It supposedly happened to East Stanley Jones. He was a Methodist missionary to India. He told of being on a train in the Midwest with a young man, and as they talked and got to know each other, they were traveling to this small city, and he found out this young man had been a prodigal. He had left the family. He lived a hellacious, rebellious life. He had written his parents and asked if he could come home. And he had not heard from them, and he didn't know if he would be accepted or not. So according to E. Stanley Jones, the old E. Stanley Jones, he said that he told them that I said if they want me to get off the train to tie some kind of like orange ribbon on a poplar tree, not a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. That was Tony Orlando, and yes, I told you I was 57. I know who Tony Orlando was. They come around a corner, and this guy is so nervous, he said, I don't think I can look. He knew he had brought such shame on his family. And according to the story, Stanley Jones is looking out the window, and he says, Look, look, the whole tree is aflame with orange ribbons. There is a banner over heaven, the entrance of heaven, that says, Welcome home, sinner. Welcome home. He says, a rich welcome, a warm welcome as we pursue godliness in anticipation of that. Last words are from Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
who knew what it was like to apply these in his life. And in his book, Spiritual Depression, about these verses, he says, If we are unhappy and depressed Christians, it is more than likely it is all due to lack of discipline. Boy, that's not something we want to hear today, is it? All due to lack of discipline. Let us therefore be up and doing and giving all diligence. Let us supplement our faith and not be afraid. Let us get our minds clear and then put them into practice and supplement our faith with this strength and vigor, with this knowledge, with this temperance, with this patience, with this godliness, with this brotherly kindness and love. Let us begin to enjoy our Christian lives and be useful and helpful to others. Let us grow in grace and knowledge and so be an attraction to all who know us to come and join with us in this precious faith and to experience the blessedness of these exceedingly great and precious promises which never fail. Preach it, Martin Lloyd. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are made right with you through the work of Christ that we cannot add to, that it's all your grace. And if anyone here, especially in a crowd this size, has recognized that I don't know you, I don't know Jesus, not in the way it's being described there in, in this chapter, I pray that this very moment you might give them the gift of faith that could respond to you and say, Lord, forgive me. I receive what Christ has done. Now make me the man or woman you want me to be. And Father, may you give that assurance that even today they've been born again and now are a member of your family. We pray for those that have been believers for, for years, some here for decades, and ask that you might enable us to press on, uh, not to drift, not to float, thinking that somehow or another we're just going to drift until we, uh, we go to be with you and we underestimate the sinfulness of our own hearts. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.